Uh, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today to talk about group lockout and how to optimize this within your facility and ultimately make it easier, more efficient, more likely that your employees will follow it correctly. <clears throat> today, we're going to review the below items and leave about 15 minutes for questions at the end. So if you have any questions that arise other than on the audio at the start, uh, please type them into the question area. We'll do our best to get to them. For any questions we don't get to today, we'll make sure to round back to the group with answers in the coming week or so. <clears throat> As well, no lockout tagout or the control of hazardous energy for OSHA 1910-147 always falls in OSHA's top 10 and is usually in their top five. In both 2018 and 2019, it was ranked fourth, only behind fall protection, HASCOM, and scaffolding. OSHA estimates that there are roughly 3 million U.S. workers who service equipment and have the potential to be exposed to hazardous energy every year. Based on stats since the inception of the lockout tagout standard over 30 years ago, it is also estimated that proper lockout tagout prevents 50,000 injuries per year and prevents 120 fatalities per year in the U.S. Workers injured on the job from exposure to hazardous energy on average lose 24 workdays for recuperation. If you do the math there, that's 50,000 injuries saved per year with 24 workdays per injury. That's going to equate to about 1.2 million lost days. Think about those numbers, 120 deaths, 50,000 injuries, resulting in 1.2 million lost days of work. That is really why lockout takeout matters, preventing deaths and injuries, and that's why we shall take it very seriously. On the right, you can see the top lockout takeout sections that were cited in 2018, with energy control procedures, periodic inspection, and energy control program being the top three. What are some of the common problems we see with group lockout? Working under someone else's locker, a false sense of security. That's, this is really one of the most serious challenges we face when performing group lockout. Maybe somebody forgets their lock, maybe there are no open spots on the group lock box, or maybe they just need to do a few minutes of work and don't wanna take the time to put their lock on and sign off. No matter what the scenario, this opens us up to a very serious situation where, workers, where we have workers performing work who are not properly protected. Second common problem, unprepared situations. First year, I want to talk about a best practice that is really important in lockout takeout. Never use up the last lock position. This prevents anyone else from locking onto that point and can lead to someone not locking out. <clears throat> There's only one lock position left. Always use a hasp to make sure that there are open spots for others to lock on if needed. Not following this best practice leads us to other serious challenges while following the lockout takeout standard. First, we have a situation where someone locks onto an isolation point like shown in the picture here. Then they realize they need a quick hand to help perform some of their work. Now we have to remove our lock and add a hasp to allow the other person to lock on. Or if they're just giving us a hand, can't they just help us quick? After all, I'm locked on and they're right there with me, so why do they have to lock on? Obviously, we want them to lock out, but not having an open lock position. But by not having an open lock position, we have a situation where we're making it harder for them to lock out which usually increases the chances that they won't. Secondly, using the same picture on the right, what happens when someone else needs to lock out this breaker to perform work on a different piece of equipment controlled by the same point? Now we have to go find the person who originally locked the point out and have them remove their lock and apply a hasp, which again leads to a situation where we're making it harder to lock out, again, leading to a lower likelihood of them actually locking out. Coordination and oversight. 
This really gets down to the general management of the project. If lockboxes are properly positioned, documentation is readily available, and we have a process for locking on and locking off, it's much more likely that individuals coming into the work area will, will actually lock out. The more of a mess our group lockout system is, the higher the likelihood for our errors, higher the likelihood for errors occurring. And abandoned locks. It's going to happen, especially in the absence of coordination and oversight. A lot of times workers get in the habit of leaving their locks on between shifts because they'll be back tomorrow. This is a very bad habit. What if testing or positioning is needed on the off shift? What if they're sick tomorrow and don't come in? What if someone sees their lock and thinks they're still there, then wastes four hours looking for them because they shouldn't be there? This ties closely back to having a good process and holding people accountable. Like I said, it's going to happen. Make sure you have a policy on it that includes removing the lock by a company appointed individual. We'll discuss this along with the other common problems further as we go through the rest of the presentation. It all starts with a solid program. At the end of the day, everything starts with a solid program. OSHA requires that you have a lockout takeout program that includes your written program, equipment specific procedures, you train your employees, have adequate devices to achieve full lockout, and that you do periodic inspections of your employees and procedures to ensure compliance. From a best practice perspective, we also highly recommend you identify all your isolation points so that they can easily be tied to your procedural steps on your lockout takeout procedure. I.e. use a P&ID methodology or something similar where all your isolation points are properly identified in the field and that these identifiers are called out on your procedures. Within your overall lockout program, the written program is the building block of everything you're going to do from a lockout takeout perspective and how you're going to train your employees on what they're going to do and is also what you hold your employees accountable to. Additionally, if OSHA shows up and starts asking employees questions about lock your lockout takeout program, make sure they know they can reference the written document if they need to. Lastly, your written program needs to be company or site specific, be aligned with your operational practices include all the required elements, and most importantly, be accepted, understood, and followed by your workers. While keeping things visual sounds easy, it is one of the key things you can use to make your lockout takeout program easier for your employees to understand, make your employees more efficient performing lockout, and make it easier to monitor compliance while under an active lockout takeout situation. When we start to talk about visual, it's important to remember that OSHA requires padlocks and devices to be durable, substantial, standardized, identifiable, and exclusive for the control of hazardous energy. We'll talk about the last three in the coming slides as they definitely tie into the visual elements of your lockout takeout program. Durable and substantial deal with the environmental and physical capabilities of the devices and locks. Lockout takeout devices shall be capable of withstanding the environment to which they're exposed for the maximum period of time they're exposed and they should be substantial enough to prevent removal without excessive use of force or unusual techniques. As for standardized, OSHA states lockout takeout devices shall be standardized within the facility in at least one of the following criteria, color, shape, or size. We'll go through a more in-depth example shortly, but here's a quick visual on how some companies use these criteria by groups within their facility to help standardize. Using different lock types or colors is a key way to visually standardize, often breaking out different operational and maintenance areas of your workforce into different styles. 
Here you can see we have standardized our mechanics to always use a red aluminum lock. Our supervisors will always use a blue aluminum lock and our EH&S employees will always use a green version of this lock. Maybe for weight considerations, we'll have our operators use a purple nylon lock with a steel shackle. And for our electricians, we'll use that same nylon lock, but in red or yellow and make a non-conductive shackle version available as shown and the yellow lock with the plastic shackle. At the end of the way, there are many ways to standardize. The key thing being that locks are readily identifiable as lockout tagout locks and that they're not to be used for other purposes. Identifiable. OSHA states lockout tagout devices shall indicate the identity of the employee applying the device. Here we can see a few different options where we can engrave the locks with the employee's name and contact info, or we can use a tag with similar information if lock engraving is not what we wanna do. In addition, here you can see an example of a contractor lock where we require the contractors to have their company name, employee name, and employee contact information on the lock. And last but not least, OSHA states that lockout tagout devices shall be singularly identified, shall only be used, shall only be the only devices used for controlling energy, and shall not be used for other purposes. What does this really mean? In reality, if you're going to use a padlock or device for lockout tagout, it should not be used for anything else within your facility, i.e. securing a cabinet. On the right, you see a common example of a padlock that can be used for both lockout tagout or security. But if we're using these to secure cabinets, toolboxes, job boxes, or other items within our facility, they cannot be utilized for lockout takeout. Now we'll walk through some examples of common of some common use padlock systems that are often used within larger facilities that do group lockouts. We'll walk through an example shortly on how this works from an overall procedural perspective. Here you can see a good example of using isolation point locks. These are key to lichen groups. They're usually all one color, shape, and size, and they're often serialized. They're gonna be kept at the point of use or a convenient storage location. They can be engraved or used with a tag or labeled for identification purposes. From our experience, engraving is the most durable way to ID locks with a quality tag being the second best option. Labeling is acceptable, but as I'm sure we have all seen a lot of padlocks with labels where the labels are barely legible and almost worn out. In this example, we have 10 locks for our number one air handler unit. These will be kept by the location, by the air handler and with the appropriate devices for locking the valve. A lot of time we may just have serialized sets of locks where the number of locks is determined by our largest lockout we have to perform. Say we have something with 23 lockout points as our largest procedure within the facility. Maybe we just have a set of serialized locks that goes from one to 25 to cover us for all these situations. In this example, think about the efficiency of locking out this air handler unit if we have five people working on it and we don't use isolation locks. In this scenario, we would need a hasp on each isolation point or each device at the isolation point, then each of the five people to lock onto that hasp. That's 10 hasps and 50 locks. Imagine trying to do a shift change in this scenario. If we already use isolation point locks, we'll simply need 10 isolation point locks along with our devices, and then a group lock box with the five individual or authorized employees locks placed on the lock box, preferably with a supervisory lock acting as a control. So that's only 16 locks in a lock box. Not, not only is the lockout a lot quicker and more efficient and use less padlocks, but it's much easier for a streamlined shift change under this scenario. Operations locks. For larger group lockouts, think of power gen, chemical, gas, pulp and paper, 
or any facility that's really process related or anywhere a large group lockout is gonna take place. Operations is usually in control of the shutdown, lockout and startup of the equipment. These locks will be keyed like or keyed different based upon your written program. And they will primarily be used for group lockouts. It will be the first lock on and the last lock off the group lock box. This is the best practice and a visual way to tell authorized employees that a group lockout is in place and the equipment is under a lockout controlled by ops and ready for them to lock out to. Individual locks. Individual locks are gonna be for your authorized employees to use for either group lockout or their individual lockout needs. They will usually be, they will always be key to like by employee with each employee having access to one key. This is the best practice and within the OSHA standard, making sure there are not multiple keys floating around a facility for the same locks. They can be master keyed based on your program, giving a supervisor or manager the ability to remove the lock in an abandoned lock situation. Coordinator locks. So what is a lockout takeout coordinator? This is gonna be the person responsible for helping to coordinate any contractors who will be working or locking onto the lockout. The coordinator is going to be the person responsible for managing contractors signing on and signing off the lockout and ensuring they understand their scope of work and how it relates to the overall lockout and maintenance activity being performed. Typically, the coordinator will either use a HASP on the primary lockbox or they will use a remote lockbox and they will always put their lock on first and remove it last after all contractors have removed their locks. This methodology also allows for the coordinator to be a double check at the end of a project to make sure all contractors have completed their work and all their employees are off site before restarting the equipment. Primary lockbox. This is really just going to be your first lockbox in a long, possibly long string of lockboxes. Your primary lockbox is going to be the one with the isolation lock keys in it, and it is going to be where ops uses their control lock in a first on last off fashion if you're doing group lockout this way. Again, it's really just the first lock box that contains your isolation point keys and eventually, and may eventually lead to a longer string of lock boxes. Remote locks and lock boxes. This is where we really start to look at how we're going to manage larger group lockouts. This comes into play when, in the, some of the following scenarios. We may have too many employees for one lockbox, or we may have multiple contractors that we wanna separate out and use different lockboxes for each contractor. Sometimes we may wanna have conveniently located lockboxes for employees or contractors to use, or maybe we just don't want our primary lockbox out in the general area from a security standpoint. After all, it does contain our key for the isolation point box. In conjunction with a remote lockbox, you would have a remote lock that would go on your primary lockbox and the key for that would go on the remote lockbox and be controlled by an authorized employee's lock, a supervisor, or a lockout takeout coordinator lock. We highly recommend the lockbox is labeled to align with how the remote lock is identified, especially if you're going to be using multiple remote lockboxes. Contractor locks. From a best practice standpoint, these should be used with a coordinator lock and will be placed after the coordinator lock on a HASP or on a group lockbox. Also from a best practice perspective, I really want a quick and easy way to identify a contractor lock. If you don't require a specific color or type of lock for your contractors, I recommend using a tag that achieves the same function. 
At the end of the day, being able to quickly identify when a contractor is locked on to one of your company's lockout procedures is visually important as it can lead to other questions like why the contractor is there. and Maybe they aren't locked on after a coordinator lock and that's gonna raise some red flags. Structuring your shutdown and startup. Um, this is really where we start looking at the total project and ensuring we have everything in place to not only complete the project at hand, but also to make sure we do it in a safe manner. Typically, these things will start taking shape in the early stages of the project planning session. And there are some things we really wanna ensure we've done. First of all, we really wanna ensure we have a detailed scope of work for the project. Not only is this important from a maintenance perspective, but it will also help to identify what tasks and jobs fall safely under the lockout procedure that is being developed. When the scope of work and lockout procedure are developed, we need to ensure we take into account if any Temporary protective grounds will be needed to ensure electrical safety and prevent accidental sparking. We also need to think through the project plan. We need to identify and take into account anything, any need, any need for such things as testing or positioning that will need to take place during the maintenance activity as well. If testing or positioning is needed, a deeper dive into the lockout tagout procedure and how we will perform our group lockout will be needed to make the testing and positioning unlock as efficient as possible. Once we have a project plan and a scope of work detailed out, next we really wanna start diving into the JSA or job safety analysis and making sure we highlight and mitigate any risks and start highlighting any permits we may need such as confined space, hot or cold work, or any special permits that may be re required. The JSA is really the first step to start highlighting any safety concerns we'll have with the project and start to mitigate them before they arise. This is a very important step in the overall project as well. Is the shutdown and restart process documented? Based upon our operational practices, you really should have SOPs developed that will ensure we can safely shut down and start back up equipment associated with the scope of work and the maintenance activity. Most equipment comes from the factory with some type of shutdown or startup process. We really need to take this into account to make sure we're safely shut down equipment and able to safely restart it. Has a lockout tagout procedure been requested, developed, reviewed, and approved? This is really when we start working on developing the lockout tagout procedure. This can be easily manageable for smaller scope of works, but for large complex systems, think of a power plant. This may entail creating the correct boundaries around our work area and then using our single line drawings and our PID drawings and working to figure out what isolation points we'll ultimately need to lock out. The more complex the lockout, the more people we will want involved in the development, review, and approval of the lockout procedure and our overall lockout tagout boundaries. Have our tags been completed? While this seems simple, the tag creation process can be quite time consuming and burdensome, especially for larger lockouts. I'd highly recommend that you investigate a combined software and printing solution that allow direct printing of tags right from the lockout tagout procedure. This will save valuable time and resources that can be applied to other areas of the project. Done the work to put the information onto your lockout tagout procedure, it should be as streamlined as possible to get that information from your lockout procedure onto your tags and onto your isolation points. Lastly, once we know what we're locking out and what type of lockout we're doing, ensuring we have all the proper isolation devices, locks and lock boxes is a must. 
Typically, this is an often overlooked area that we want to catch before we get into the actual lockout. So going through and counting up how many different types of ball valve lockouts and gate valve lockouts and electrical disconnect lockouts and any other type of lockout device we need is really an important step that we shouldn't overlook. Really accessible info in the right places. Uh, first, I want to talk a little bit about some often overlooked info that can really make the equipment lockout more efficient and decrease the likelihood of mistakes. That is ensuring that you have all your isolation points labeled. This can be a tag label or stenciling on the equipment. From experience, we recommend high quality labels on all electrical disconnects and a durable tag on everything else. This goes back to the best practice discussed earlier in reference to your lockout tag out program. Making isolation points easy to identify will require some upfront work but in the long term, we'll save time and mistakes when performing lockouts. As for signing on and signing off the lockout, this is really where we need to think through the logistics of how workers will be entering the job site and where it is most convenient, where the most convenient spot is for them to review any documentation, fill out any permits, and ultimately lock onto the project. Once we've determined our lockbox and sign on, sign off locations, we need to ensure we have the correct documentation at those points. First and foremost, this allows workers to review the project and or the lockout procedure and ensure that they are there, they, what they are there to do falls under the scope of work and that they can safely lock on and perform their work. Secondly, if they're required to do a task specific JSA, ensure they have their correct forms there to be filled out. Lastly, based on their job and or the JSA, ensure all, they have all the proper permit forms available to fill out as well. Managing workers and shift changes. Next, we, next as part of group lockout, we really want to have a solid way to understand who is actively on the project at any time and also be able to get a hold of them easily if needed. Typically, there would be some sort of sign-on, sign-off form that will highlight any plant authorized employees who are actively on the project in a separate form for any contractors. This will provide a detailed list of workers and their contact info in case questions <clears throat> or an emergency arise. And in case of an emergency, this can serve as a great aid at your muster point to make sure you've accounted for all your workers and contractors. Lastly, this can serve as a reminder to employees as they sign out to also remove their locks for the day. Next, we need to think through shift changes. This process will vary based upon how you're utilizing group lockout. In a direct handover situation, if you're using HASP at the isolation points as your method, there will always need to be a lock on the point to ensure continuity. So as new authorized employees come onto the project for their shift, they will have to lock onto the HASP before the prior shift employees remove their last lock. This can be effective for smaller group lockouts where there will only be a few workers per shift. If for some reason, the authorized employees on the previous shift have to leave prior to the next shift locking on, then a supervisory handoff should be used to ensure continuity. This would involve a supervisor locking onto the point prior to the earlier shift unlocking, then once the next shift is safely locked on, the supervisor can remove their lock. For large scale group lockouts with lots of employees and contractors, I recommend using a control lock system so that there is no need for transferring control from authorized employee to authorized employee or from an authorized employee to a supervisor. We'll see an example of this shortly, but in effect, the person or group that is ultimately in charge of the lockout 
initially places a control lock or operations lock on the primary lockbox, and this will remain on until the entire project is completed, ultimately placing the lockout continuously under the control of that person or group. Abandoned locks. Like it or not, there's always the chance that someone is going to forget to remove their lock when they leave for the day. This becomes an issue at the end of a project when we're looking to start the equipment back up or during the project when we need to do testing or positioning. From experience, the latter is the usual culprit. Most workers know when the project is done and at that time ensure their locks are properly removed. But when we have testing or positioning in the middle of a project that can catch people by surprise, if a lock is abandoned and needs to be removed, remember these critical points. All reasonable efforts shall be made to contact the individual. If the employee is at the facility, the employee should come back to the site and remove their lock. If the employee is not at the facility and can be reached, and it is not reasonable for the employee to return to the facility, the plant manager or his or her designee may, with the employee's agreement, remove the lock. The key piece of this being that if it's not reasonable for the employee to return to the facility, this is a good chance to enact some accountability. If it's reasonable for the employee to return to the facility, albeit it might be inconvenient, they should return to the facility and remove their own lock. If the employee cannot be contacted, the plant manager or his designee, his or her designee shall follow these steps to remove the lock. First and foremost, determine the employee holding the lock has indeed left the facility. Secondly, thoroughly inspect the work area to ensure no one is in harm's way. Third, notify the lock holder and their supervisor that their lock is being removed. Ultimately, this should be spelled out in your program and clarified as part of the project with any contractors. Having a lock removal form is definitely a best practice, so the process is done properly and documented. Lastly, this is where we need to determine if the lock is master keyed and who has the authority based on your program to remove the lock. If it is master keyed, this will save you the cost of the lock, otherwise it's time to physically destroy the lock and remove. Again, all reasonable efforts should be employed here and having someone other than the lock owner remove the lock should be avoided at all costs. Lastly, we really need to understand how many workers will be locking onto the project at any given time, including shift changes, and then ensure we have lock boxes or hasps that can accommodate that number. <clears throat> Thinking through how and where the lock boxes will be used will help you determine the best style. Key things to think through will include, will you need the lockbox to be used to store locks when they're not in use? Will the lockbox be used to transport locks during the lockout process? Will the lockbox be mounted to a wall and if so, should it be removable? And how many lock points do you need? Thinking through these questions will help to select the proper lockbox for the job and will ultimately help to make the lock-on, lock-off process more efficient and thus more likely to happen properly. And here, I'm gonna take a drink. And then we'll walk through an example. <clears throat> so here we have a quick example of performing a group lockout on a typical boiler used in many facilities. We've been through our planning meeting, developed our scope of work, performed our JSA, have our hot working combined space permits ready to go, and now we're ready to start the project. First, we'll use our SOP to shut down the equipment and allow it to cool. Once the equipment is cooled, we'll start our lockout. <clears throat> Again, think through the efficiency here of using authorized employee locks versus isolation locks onto the actual isolation points. If we have five workers performing work under this lockout, 
we'd need five workers to lock on to 12 different points. That's gonna be 12 hasps and 60 locks. And again, it's gonna be almost unmanageable at a shift change. If we use isolation point locks, we'll have 12 locks directly onto the isolation points. We'll have the key for those locks in a, in a group lock up, group lock box and the five employees and likely a supervisor can lock onto the lock box. That's, that's a total of 17 locks or depending on how you do math, 18 locks <laughs> and a group lock box, depending on how many, if you're gonna have a supervisor on as well or not. Under this scenario, shift change is also more streamlined. <clears throat> so here, we'll follow our lockout procedure step-by-step step and isolate each required isolation point and apply our devices, tags, and locks. Here are the first four steps and please take note, it's always important to follow the steps in order as we should have prioritized and sequenced these during our procedure development process. So that's a whole nother conversation. So we'll walk through each isolation point step-by-step. Step. Here you can see the first step being the electrical. Uh, which is typically for a system such as this. We'll shut the electrical off, apply our lock and tag directly to the electrical disconnect, and then we'll move on to our gate valve as seen in step two and three, and then we'll move on to our ball valves, as you see in steps four. Uh, as we move on, we'll continue our lockout all the way through the end. At that point, the lockout's complete, but now we need to verify. So once the lockout is fully executed, we'll then verify ener all energy has been properly isolated <clears throat> and that there is no residual energy in the system. For group lockouts, I highly recommend the second person verify as opposed to the person who did the lockout. Think of this as having someone else proofread your paper to catch errors. It's much easier for someone else with a fresh set of eyes to catch your mistakes. For really large lockouts, say over 100 or so steps, we may want to have two separate people or maybe even more verify as an additional check. Now we'll place our isolation point lock, the key for our isolation point locks into our primary lock box. And then we'll have our operations lead for the project apply their control lock and tag. We'll then make sure all the proper documentation is with the primary lock box. And this will then indicate we're active and under, under an active lockout tagout situation. Now that we have secured our isolation point key and applied our control lock, we can begin to have our authorized employees lock onto the project to perform their scheduled work. What do we do when we have a few contractors that need to come in and help? <clears throat> this is where we start to utilize our lockout takeout coordinator. For a few contract employees, we'll apply a HASP to our primary lockbox and then secure that with our lockout takeout coordinator lock and tag. This allows for the lockout takeout coordinator to act not only as the primary contact for your contractors, there's a double check prior to releasing the lockout that all contractors are safely off the project and not in harm's way. The use of a HASP and lockout takeout coordinator lock visually signifies that there will be contractors performing work on the project. Remember, the contractors here should always lock on after the lockout takeout coordinator lock. Now we can have our, lock, our contractors lock on and start performing the work they're scheduled to do. Having a contractor lock on our lockbox without a lockout takeout coordinator lock present visually signifies in this scenario that something is not right. And measures can be taken to figure out why a contractor is locked on to this lockout without approval. What do we do if we have a lot of contractors who are going to work on the lockout takeout or under the lockout takeout? This is when we need to look at using a remote or secondary lockbox to accommodate this situation. Here we'll apply a remote lockbox 
number one lock onto our primary lockbox with its associated tag. Now we will place the key for that lockbox into our associated remote lockbox number one. And then we will secure this lockbox with a lockout takeout coordinator lock. Again, giving our lockout takeout coordinator control in this situation and signaling that contractors will be signing on with this lockout. Remember, any required documentation that is present at our primary lockbox should also be present at our remote lockbox if it is not directly in the vicinity of the primary lockbox. At this point, we can have our contractors work with the coordinator, review the documentation for the project and the lockout and have them lock onto the lockout. <clears throat> Now using the same methodology, we can see how we can quickly use this process to ultimately expand our number of lockboxes to as many as we need. Here we'll go through a similar process of using remote locks, remote lockboxes, and re lockout, remote or lockout takeout coordinator locks to extend the number of total number of lock and lockbox positions to as many as we need. Note a few things here. One, if you don't use a lockout takeout coordinator, that's perfectly fine. A lot of companies use their operations locks or a supervisory lock to extend lockouts as shown here. I personally like the lockout takeout coordinator lock because it tells me that contractors can sign on and provide the visual cue for this. If you're thinking about the number of locks on your primary lockbox and getting concerned, you can extend the lockout from the remote lockbox as well. For example, for remote lockbox number two, you would apply its lock onto remote lockbox one and so on and so forth. In summary, we walked through a lot here today. <clears throat> Keep in mind these five steps and don't be scared to ask for help. With the way things are going in 2020, there has never been a busier time for our plant EHS people. Their focus has rightly been on the COVID pandemic and safely keeping people at work. There are a lot of companies out there that can help with everything you need to shore up your lockout program. If you need, and if you're in need, I highly recommend you research and have them help you. Keep in mind that your written program is a structure that everything else is built off of. Without a solid one, it is nearly impossible to make sure everything else is done properly. After a solid program is developed, keeping your program as visual as possible, properly structuring your shutdown and startup, having proper information in the right spots, and having a way to manage, manage workers will help you on your way to a successful group lockout. I hope you've enjoyed the presentation today and, and I've taken a few things away that can help you in your day-to-day -day job and ultimately help you keep your employees safe. Well, sorry about that, folks. Uh, yeah, we have a bit of an audio problem on Kevin's end. I'm Alan Ferguson, uh, fellow associate editor at Safety and Health, and I'll jump in real quick. 
First, we want to thank Mitch for this wonderful presentation. And before we start the q and I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey will open in a different screen after this presentation. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. And we also appreciate you taking the extra time to offer feedback. Uh, now let's get to uh, some questions. Our first question is, how long is a lock how long until a lock is deemed abandoned? Abandoned, excuse me. What's it? Oh, oh. Um, how long is a lock? How long until a lock is deemed abandoned? Uh, it's really going to depend on ultimately the, the situation you're under. So, uh, an abandoned lock is typically after a set amount of time, um, which you usually be called out within your program. Um, I've seen situations where an employee forgets their lock on, leaves for the day. Technically, that lock is abandoned, but we don't need to remove it as long as that employee is coming back the next day. Again, it's a bad best practice. It's a bad practice, but ultimately, abandoned lock is when you need to perform an unlock of the piece of equipment, and there's a lock there with somebody not on site to remove it. So, our next question: Can the verifying process also be considered the, the annual audit? Can the verifying process also be considered as the annual audit? Um, yes. So typically, if I'm, if I'm understanding the question correctly, so typically on a yearly basis, you have to inspect your procedures to make sure they're compliant. And you also have to do a periodic inspection of your employees to make sure that they are able to follow the procedure correctly. Um, if you're going through an active lockout um, and you have the right controls in place and the right people to monitor that situation, that can be used as your annual audit. So what is the best way and most, and perhaps the most effective way to ensure and document that, that annual audit? Um, so typically this is a, a bit of a gray area for um, the OSHA regulation. Um, the, what, what I typically say is the best practice, just making sure you have uh, a detailed account of which lockout tagout procedure was audited or used, who the authorized employees were that performed um, the procedural steps and who the reviewer was and just keeping that documented in a way, whether it be uh, in an Excel file or a Microsoft Word file, um, just making sure you keep that um, from a documentation standpoint. Now, you mentioned the efficiency gain of being able to print your lockout tags directly from the software. Is there's software that allows this? Yeah, there's there's actually quite a few softwares out there. If you research it, um, you'll find quite a few. Um, Brady, I, I'm our overall global product manager for Lockout. Um, so I, I cover all of our Lockout takeout, padlocks, devices, software, and services. Uh, Brady does have a proprietary software that we've developed um, that, we, that we own um, where you can directly print. Once you create your Lockout takeout procedure within the software, as you walk through the procedure, you have the option to print tags and labels for that procedure. Um, and then you can either print those to like your standard desktop printer, or you can print those to a Brady label making printer as well to directly apply them onto your isolation points or to onto your tags. Our, uh, hold on one second. Our next question, uh, first of all, thank you for the insightful presentation. 
What are your thoughts on using technology to reduce the amount of paperwork? Also, any reason why we use keys instead of codes? Uh, um, good question. So thoughts on technology to reduce the amount of paperwork. I definitely love it. So I, I mentioned before, um, Brady has a software, it's called Link360. Um, we, we see two different types of customers within that software uh, use case, if you will, where we have the ability from our web version of that software to print out a procedure, hang it on the piece of equipment. Um, additionally, we have apps that you can pull up on your Android or uh, iOS device and walk through that same lockout procedure and do your periodic inspections right on the device. Um, so from a technology standpoint, it really takes advantage of what, what we've seen as far as technology development in the last 10 years and making it really easy and concise for, for companies or employees that wanna use technology to make lockout more streamlined, uh, cut down a lot of the things we need to print out and so on and so forth. Um, what was the second part of that question? Uh, I think the second part was. And it got away from me. Um, let's see. Uh, any, also, any reason why we use keys instead of codes? Um, why we use keys instead of codes? Uh, Long-standing practice. So lockout, tagout since the inception of the, the standard by OSHA 30 years ago. It's often been the mantra and says it within the standard, one lock, one key. Um, so if you have an employee with five locks, there should be one key that controls that lock. So I, I do think someday we'll see a scenario where we go to more of a, a smart lock methodology uh, down the road with either using uh, Bluetooth technology or something similar to that to unlock locks or even to use codes. Um, but codes are easy to share. Uh, it's easy for me to write down my code and give it to somebody else. Uh, so typically it's just the, the long-standing long understanding that long-standing understanding, wow. Uh, the long-standing uh, part of the standard that references locks and keys as part of the OSHA standard. Our, our next question, do all workers locking out on, on the lockout have to verify the steps on the procedure? Um, typically from a best practice standpoint, I would say yes. Um, in most cases, especially for smaller group lockouts, uh, say it's under 20 or 30 points, um, it's really easy for those workers as they come on to walk through the lockout procedure, walk around the piece of equipment. Imagine that boiler we just had. It'd be really easy for me to pick up that procedure, walk around and verify that all the lockout takeout points have been properly isolated. Um, bit of a gray area with the OSHA standard, but typically for really large lockouts, having a qualified operations person shut down the equipment, lock it out, having someone verify it, having the key put in the lockbox and then having a control person or an ops person put that lock on the lockbox typically signifies that there's no need for uh, people to do the procedural step-by-step walk around of the equipment. Uh, I do recommend though, highly recommend that when a contractor or an employee is coming on to really reference their scope of work and to work with either the control person from ops or the lockout takeout coordinator to make sure that their scope of work falls under what the original scope of work for that project was and thus the original lockout. Our next question, are there any waterproof lockout devices for say electrical plugs? Uh, this question asker says, uh, I've looked and have not found anything. 
Um, not to my knowledge, not any fully waterproof lockouts or locks. Are there any, oh, an, another question. Are there any locks that use uh, biometrics, you know, like a thumbprint? There are, those typically aren't used for lockout takeout. I, I'm curious why, why is that? Uh, typically just from a cost structure standpoint. So okay. if you look at your standard lockout takeout pad, like um, yeah. you're looking at usually 15 to 20, $25 per lock, uh, biometric thumbprint locks and Bluetooth technology, the locks can be in the hundreds of dollars. Um, and typically the way locks are used within a facility um, locks, I don't want to say they're treated as a consumable, but if somebody loses a lock, it's not a huge deal. They get another lock. Um, yeah. So the, the cost yeah. is pretty prohibitive currently from using uh, any of those smarter types of lock locks. Um, so what makes a padlock a safety padlock? And is there a difference between a safety padlock and a security padlock? So what makes a lock a safety padlock? So really, you can use any type of lock you want for a safety lock. So we went through a lot and you saw a lot of examples within the presentation. Uh, Brady sells a bunch of different styles of locks. Now the key thing being for a safety padlock within your facility, that it is not used for any other purpose and that it's readily identifiable as part of your lockout tagout program. So you go back to the slide where I had the purple aluminum lock in the laminated steel lock a lot of facilities use those laminated steel locks for security purposes. They lock up garages or buildings or job boxes with them. Uh, and that would unqualify them from being used as lockout because they're being used for something else within the facility. So our next question, what are the key things to look at when selecting group lock boxes and what are the customization options? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So I, th I think some of the key things to look at is ultimately, you know, how are you, how are you gonna do group lockout? Uh, I've been through a lot of facilities where, you know, we, we're gonna store our locks within the group lock box. So then, then the storage um, part of it comes, becomes really important where I can put 50 locks in my lock box, I can carry it around and apply those locks to the isolation points. Then I can then leave the remaining locks in that lock box and lock it out. Uh, I've also been to facilities where they use a lot of lock boxes that are mounted to a wall. Um, they'll have 10 lock boxes in a row along, you don't have a lot of workers lock out. Um, these typically aren't used for storage then or transport of locks to the, to the lockout points. Um, so it's really gonna depend on what type of mobility you want. Do you want lock storage? And then ultimately how many lock points do you need? Um, there's a lot of lock boxes out there and typically you're gonna range from six lockout points on a lock box up to 60. Uh, so it's really going to depend on your overall lock process, how you're going to store your padlocks, and then how many lockout points you need. From a customization option, you saw in the presentation, there's usually there's going to be red and yellow typically available in most lock boxes. Uh, other than that, there's not a lot of customization options. This is where I highly recommend using a, a durable label um, to identify or a stencil like, hey, this is primary lockbox one, or this is AHU number one lockbox, or this is remote lockbox number three. Um, and just having a way that when you walk through a facility or walk through a lockout, that you're gonna be able to readily identify where that lockbox is being used and what piece of equipment it's tied to or what lockout procedure it's gonna be used under. Now, you did mention shift change in your presentation. So what happens to the group lockout when there's a transition 
such as a shift change, but there's a time lapse between the shift change. You know, for example, first shift leaves at 3 p.m., second shift starts at 5 p.m. So, you know, obviously a little bit of gap there. Yep, so a couple different solutions there. So one, <clears throat> uh, you can do a supervisory handoff where a supervisor would place their lock on a lockbox um, before the first shift leaves. Um, and then after second shift locks on, uh, that, that, that supervisor could remove their lock. But you always need to have one lock on for continuity purposes. The other way to do it would be to use the, like the example I walked through, kind of a control lock situation where I, as a qualified operations person, I'm in charge of this lockout. I'm in charge of the overall project. I'm going to make sure this piece of equipment's locked out properly. I'm going to have one of my authorized employees lock everything out. I'm going to have another authorized employee verify everything. And then as being the one in charge and owning the lockout, overall lockout of the piece of equipment, I'm going to put my lock on and leave that lock on there until the project's done. At that point, we've effectively put the lock, lockout under my control for the duration um, until the project's done and there's no need to do like the shift change handover type methodology. Are there some good practical example uh, case studies that, that, that people can reference to see the decisions made, the steps followed to ensure that the uh, process is successfully executed from beginning to end? And also, are there any case studies out there on any failures or mistakes that have resulted in incidents that uh, we can learn from? Um, I can definitely look into this one a little more. Uh, none that I'm aware of, so typically, <clears throat> at least from your lockout takeout program. Um, what I recommend to people is as you're developing your lockout takeout program, this is where it's really important that you're working with both your maintenance and your operations team to make sure what's gonna be in the program is how they're actually going to use group lockout or group takeout. Um, there's not a ton of good case studies out there on best practices around this type of stuff. Um, as a worst case scenario, there's definitely, there's companies out there, Brady being one of them where we have uh, a degree, master's, master's degree DHS person who we, we have come out to facilities uh, as a paid service and help them develop their lockout takeout program. Uh, we also have 30 plus territory managers around the U.S. from a sales perspective that can come out and talk to some of the best practices as well. Um, but there's not a lot of case studies that I'm aware of uh, highlighting best practices and or failures within group lockout takeout. <clears throat> Can you explain the difference between a simple versus a complex lockout tagout? Um, yeah, it, uh, uh, simple versus complex is gonna be in the eye of the beholder. For me, simple is gonna be something likely less than 20 to 25 steps. Uh, complex is gonna be more than 25 or maybe 50 steps. Um, it's also gonna, for me, involve the number of people needed. Um, if you, anytime you have multiple people performing the lockout, i.e. you might have a procedure with 30 steps, but the first five steps need to be done by a qualified electrician and the next 25 steps need to be done by a operations person or a mechanic. Uh, that's, I would also deem as a more complex lockout. Uh, does or, or will Brady offer in-class training in terms of lockout tagout? Yep. So we, we have a, Brady has, uh, we have a team of service field, what we call field service engineers. We have 25 engineers around, based around the U.S. that do work in United States, Canada, and Mexico. 
Um, and those individuals include people that come to site and will do uh, like a authorized employee training. Um, they'll do a lockout tagout train the trainer as well, where we'll come on site and train your supervisors or your H and that's people how to perform the lockout tagout training themselves. Can you walk us through some considerations for selecting different lock body slash uh, shackle types? That's a good question. So typically when you, when you look at lock body types or shackle types, um, you're really going to take into account the OSHA piece on durability and substantial. So first and foremost, um, durability, when you have a hazardous environment, you really want to think through maybe even test what the best lock is um, to withstand that environment. Um, secondly, as far as shackle types, you know, Brady offers a couple of different styles of locks. We have the inch and a half steel shackle, the longer steel, three inch steel shackle. Uh, we also have the nylon locks with an inch and a half plastic shackle or an inch and a half steel shackle. Typically you're going to see, and we have compact locks with, with plastic shackles as well. So Typically, when you're dealing with electrical, you're probably going to want to, usually most electricians like to use a nylon lock for weight just because they're, they're typically carrying around more locks than other groups within the department. Um, but anytime you're locking onto electrical panel, um, there's a chance of that lock being exposed to the live energy zones. Uh, you're typically going to want to use a truly non-conductive lock, i.e. something with a plastic shackle. Uh, otherwise, our Brady safe key locks uh, and the nylon with a steel shackle. We have non-conductive ball bearings in our locks, so there's no direct path of continuity, electrical continuity from the steel shackle to the steel key. Um, so anything, anything with electrical, you really want to think through uh, nylon body and plastic shackles. Um, otherwise, it's usually more of a durability standpoint. Like the example I did early on with highlighting that, you know, your mechanics are usually going to have aluminum locks. Well, it's because Mechanics usually take their locks at the end of the day and they throw them in their, their tool locks, um, which can cause damage to a nylon body lock. So if you need a more durable lock for someone like a mechanic or just based on the environment, that's when you're typically gonna go to an aluminum body with a steel shackle as opposed to a nylon body. What a question about regulations. Um, is Are the Canadian regulations similar to, to OSHA regulations on lockout tagout? Yeah, they're very similar. So like I said, we have engineers that go to Canada to write procedures. Um, they are not trained on the Canadian regulations because the U.S. regulations are, are usually deemed a little more stringent than the Canadian regulations. Um, so we've had engineers go up to Canada quite often and write procedures for customers based on the U.S. regulation using our Link360 software. And how many lockout devices do you recommend having? Um, enough to cover your largest lockout, or if you're going to lock out multiple pieces of equipment, um, enough to cover that scenario. Uh, a good rule of thumb is 10%, um, especially within a large facility. Um, if you got a large facility with two or 300 valves in there, you definitely don't need two or 300 gate valve or uh, ball valve lockout devices or, or anything like that. Uh, so in that scenario, we usually recommend 10%. That's also when you can look at, you know, if you have a lot of valves and you want to look at something more universal, maybe using a cable lockout device as opposed to a very specific valve cover device. Um, so it's really going to be very plant specific. We have, like I said, a bunch of Brady 
sales ter territory managers that deal with sales all the time based around the US, um, usually one one and pretty close to you. So if you have a lot of questions on <clears throat> what types of devices you need, we could definitely reach out to us and we can put you in touch with our territory manager and they can help you work through that. But at the end of the day, a, a good rule of thumb is 10%. Looks like we have uh, time for one more question. Um, it says, my facility is looking to switch from tag out to full lockout and, and want to follow group lockout best practices. What would be your recommended first steps? Are there services to, to help with this? Yeah, and that's, that's something we're seeing more and more of with. So typically, this is for PowerGen. Um, PowerGen falls under OSHA 1910-269 as opposed to 147. Um, and there's a big move within there based on some of the, the language from OSHA to move from tag out to lockout. Um, first really good step is just figuring out, you know, from a tag out perspective, usually you don't have locks or devices. So really looking at the, the areas you're gonna be locking out, figuring out what types of devices you need, um, and then figuring out, of course, how many you're gonna need. And then figuring out, you know, from a lockout perspective, there's a lot of different ways to structure your lockout program. Uh, we'll walk through some, some good examples today, but really partnering with someone and that may be an internal maintenance person or an operations person, it may be your EH&S person, or maybe a sales rep from a company like Brady, where you come to them and say, hey, you know, we're going to a full lockout scenario. Can you work with us to really help us understand what the best way is to set our facility up from a lock perspective uh, and help us determine, you know, do we need uh, five sets of one through 100 serialized locks or do we need two sets of 20 serialized locks and one set of a 500 serialized locks and that's really going to depend on the different type of equipment you have uh, and again what your what your day to day maintenance needs are going to be what your month to month PM needs are going to be and then what your long term shutdown needs are going to be so really finding an expert to help you, whether that be internal or external is a, a good first step. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our sponsor. Once again, we hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey to provide your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Mitch Reams, everyone at Brady, and of course, all of our listeners. Thank you and have a safe day.